Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the name of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he reigns above the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Next reading is from Matthew 27, 27 to 46. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. 
and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you do when God doesn't answer you? Uh, maybe you're sick, maybe you're grieving, aren't working out for you. What do you do when... Uh, You cry out to God for him to do something, to change the situation, and he does nothing. Uh, If you're a Christian here tonight, maybe you've had that experience of uh, going through tough times, crying out to God, and and God seems like he doesn't answer, he doesn't change the circumstances. How do we face times like that? Or maybe you're not a Christian, and you're here tonight uh, just checking out a church, having a look at what uh, Christians do, what they believe. Uh, maybe you've still tried calling out to God, God, why is this happening? Make this stop, God. But you've had no answer, no change to whatever is going on. How should we think about that when that happens? Well, Psalm 22 is about exactly that experience. Uh, that experience. The first half, uh, verses 1 to 25, uh, it's a psalm of lament, of crying out to God, almost in desperation, the point of death. I'm not sure if you noticed as we read it, but it's almost like there's these two internal voices in the psalm. Uh, David, the guy who wrote the psalm, is, is wrestling within himself. On the one hand, he's got the situation that he's facing, and on the other hand, uh, there's certain things that he knows about God, and so he's torn. Uh, but then did you notice, in the second half, verse 22 to 31, uh, the psalm changes completely. It's a, it turns into a hymn of praise, uh, calling everyone to worship God. So in musical terms, we go from this uh, dark, kind of emo ballad, uh, kind of wrestling with himself, and then it transforms, it morphs into this uh, huge praise and worship song. And so we're going to look at the psalm in those uh, two parts. Firstly, David's anguish and then God's answer. And then we're going to think about how Jesus changes that experience for us. Uh, So firstly, David's 
anguish. You see it there in the first verse. Uh, Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. At one level, his anguish is over the circumstances. He's facing enemies right now. Uh, But it's more than that. See there, his anguish is over the fact that God has not answered him. Night and day, he feels forsaken by God. And the tension of the psalm is right there in the first line. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, David has this deep, intimate, personal relationship with God. My God. But he feels like he's been forsaken. God has abandoned him. And so David's anguish leads to a conflict. He's got this internal battle going on. On the one hand, he feels like God is far from him. But on the other hand, he remembers things about God. He remembers Israel's story. And so a new voice comes in there in verse 3. Do you notice that? He says, yet you, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. So that yet you, God has this track record of delivering his people, rescuing them. And so uh, David remembers that. He remembers Israel's story. And so David thinks, surely I should trust the Lord then. He's done this in the past. But then he comes back to his situation. Look at me. I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. You can feel the conflict. He goes back and forth. He feels less than human. I'm a worm. I'm the kind of thing that people would just stomp on and forget about me. And he's mocked for continuing to trust God. So why doesn't he just give up on God? Well, because he turns back the other way and he remembers his own story. He remembers his own history. There in verse 9, once again, yet you, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. See, God's his creator, but it's more than that, isn't it? There's a really intimate relationship that he recognises his whole life. He's been dependent on God from the very first fragile breath of a newborn baby he has depended on god he has this lifetime of trusting god and so he remembers his own story he remembers that but right now he's facing his darkest moment there in verses 12 to 18 david's a worm uh, but his enemies are less than human as well but They're wild. They're wild animals, verse 12. They're unrestrained, strong bulls, lions, dogs, surrounding him, closing in. It's hard to imagine just how awful the circumstances are that he's facing. And it's not just the external pressure, it's the inwardly he can't cope. 
My heart has turned to wax, verse 14. It has melted within me all these images of just destruction, broken bones. I'm being poured out like water, dying of thirst. And in all of this, he has no answer from God. That's the worst thing. That's the worst thing that he's facing. To be a soldier trapped behind enemy lines, uh, stuck in a ditch with your enemies all around you, closing in, and your courage just washed away. That's one thing. But then to get on the radio and call for help and have no answer, no help at all, that's the worst thing. Now, there's a word to us here, I think, at this point in Psalm 22. Uh, that What we've seen is that David's anguish produces a conflict. And it's a struggle about whether he will trust God in these circumstances. His situation is so overwhelming. And yet he thinks about it and he says, Yet you, my God. And he wrestles with continuing to trust God. And I think that's a real challenge for us. Uh, will we do that? Will we continue to fight the fight of faith? To keep trusting God, even when we get no answer from him? Even uh, when our circumstances don't change? A friend of mine uh, struggled for many years with uh, a terrible depression, uh, the kind that kept him in bed for days upon days. Uh, and basically, it crippled him and it went on for years and one time another friend asked him how did you keep going as a christian through all that when it just there was no change and it just things weren't getting better and he said uh, i got through it because i knew that i was the lord's every day i knew that i was the lord's he fell back on the most basic thing that he knew about God, uh, that God had made him his own. And so he continued that, that battle to keep trusting God, even in difficult circumstances. And that is just the hardest thing to do. David's anguish uh, produces that kind of conflict within him. Uh, so even though he feels forsaken, uh, see what he does? Even though this is the, the worst circumstance and it's not changing, what does he do? He cries out to God, the very God that he thinks has forsaken him. He still turns to God and cries out to him, verses 19 to 21. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Uh, and we almost miss God's answer there at the end of verse 21. Uh, in the NIV, the translation we read out, it puts it as a cry for help. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. See that at the end of verse 21? Uh, but actually, it's a statement and not a request. And it uses the same word that we saw in verse 2, that word answer. Uh, it says, you have answered me from the horns of the wild oxen. Uh, it comes right out of the blue. Uh, all of a sudden, God answers uh, right from the clutches of his enemies, where he is on the horns of the wild oxen. 
God answers David and rescues him from his enemies. And so we're transported into part two of the psalm, verses 22 to 31. David's anguish leads to a conflict and God's answer leads to a celebration. Uh, In the psalm, if you read it uh, in front of you, you see that it completely changes. Uh, Now David takes on the role of worship leader. Uh, There in verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Uh, Now the setting is the temple and the whole assembly of God's people are gathered there and David is calling them to come praise and worship Yahweh for what he's done. He's now the band leader at Hillsong, some uh, mega church. You have to imagine there's smoke machines and lights and he's calling the congregation to come and sing God's praises. He's the band leader and he's throwing a party. Uh, In the Old Testament, if you uh, prayed to God, asked for something, you would often make vows to go along with that. And uh, that's what's happening. Uh, It seems like this party where he invites everyone, throws a feast, is part of fulfilling his vows. And so God's answer to his cry leads to this huge celebration. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Uh, Those who seek the Lord will praise him. See how it's not just personal anymore, but it's spread out. Uh, It takes in the whole nation, the whole assembly of God's people, singing and feasting. I haven't heard of it happening here, but uh, in America, people have these things they call cancer-free parties, uh, where if they've had cancer treatment and it's been successful, um, they're really thankful for that, and so they throw a party and they invite family and friends and doctors and nurses, people who've looked after them. And often the party is a way of uh, raising money for cancer research or cancer treatments. And that's not a bad picture of what's happening here in Psalm 22. Uh, This celebration, a feast with blessings flowing out of it, uh, all because uh, God has rescued David. Uh, But did you notice as we went through that second half... uh, it expands more and more. It gets crazy, almost too much, over the top. Uh, It's not just Israel now, not just God's people, but all the nations seem to be drawn into this praise. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. It's not just Israel and it's not just uh, all the nations, but it's all the future as well. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. See that everyone the, across time and space being drawn to, to celebrate God. God's answer to David leads to this celebration. But it's kind of beyond just David at this point. It, it feels like it's too big for just what God has done for David. Uh, it's, it's getting um, beyond that. It's like, uh, imagine my... Social basketball team, Sharknado, of which there's Union Church team. Uh, imagine Sharknado, that's our name. Uh, there's a movie of that name, but we're named after that. Sharknado 3 is our team name. Imagine Sharknado 3 uh, wins the comp this year. I think we will. Uh, and so we throw a party. That's great. Team party. Watch Sharknado. That's what we do. 
But we invite all of Union Church. We're like, this is so great. We're going to invite all of Union Church to come uh, celebrate with us. But then we're like, no, that's not enough. We're going to invite uh, everyone at Uni, all of UWA. Let's let's uh, invite them to ha- be part of this celebration. And no, no, let's take out full page ads in the West. Sharknado three wins. Uh, and then we get our trophy and we uh, put it in a time capsule and we send it to NASA and they take it and they shoot it up into the galaxy. Uh, so the entire galaxy knows that Sharknado 3 won social mixed basketball division 2 uh, down at uni, uh, UWA in semester 1. It's too much, right? <laughs> okay, well, I, I know where the line is for our celebrations. But can you see that... Sh- Psalm 22 promises way too much as well. You know, all of future history hearing about this. Uh, It's not just talking about David at this point. Uh, David is pointing uh, beyond himself uh, to Jesus. Pointing to the blessings that will come uh, from God as he uh, uses Jesus. The blessings that will flow from him. And so when we turn to the New Testament... Uh, we see those blessings come about, but actually when you look at the New Testament, it's the first half of Psalm 22 that gets connected to Jesus. Uh, When the Gospel writers want to write about the life of Jesus uh, and explain the significance of his crucifixion, they turn to Psalm 22. Uh, And we read out, uh, Matthew 27, and you might have picked up some of those connections as we read them uh, side by side. But I want to draw them out for you. I'm going to read a bit from Matthew and uh, see if you can find where that is in Psalm 22, the connection that Matthew's trying to draw out. So this is Matthew 27, verse 27. Uh, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Psalm 22, verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Back to Matthew. This is verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see that Matthew and the gospel writers look back and they don't just see David's anguish there in Psalm 22. They see it as a picture, a pattern for Jesus' abandonment by God. And Jesus doesn't just face uh, the feeling of being abandoned. He was abandoned, forsaken by God. And all these massive worldwide blessings are going to come from Jesus' suffering. Uh, But there's a twist. There's a twist to it. You see, in Psalm 22, David's blessings uh, come about when God answers him, when God rescues him from death. But Jesus' blessings are one for us when God doesn't answer him. When God doesn't rescue him from death. 
David's blessings come about when God does rescue him and he knows that he's not forsaken. But Jesus' blessings are one for us when God doesn't answer him and when he is forsaken. That's because Jesus' death is all about taking God's right anger at our sin upon himself. And so at that point, if Jesus doesn't die, then our sin is not dealt with. If, if he doesn't die, if he's rescued at that moment on the cross, then there is no substitute to die in our place. And at the cross, if God doesn't abandon the son he loves, then his anger can't be removed from us. Our punishment can't be paid for. But Jesus is abandoned. He is forsaken at the cross. And so the punishment for sin doesn't fall on us, it falls on him. And that's the message of Easter. Next week, uh, we'd love you to come along to uh, the St Matthew's Easter services on Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. Um, You can find out all those details at our website. We'd love you to come along and hear more about that, that message of what Jesus' death and resurrection achieves for us. Especially if you're uh, not someone who calls yourself a Christian, uh, you're still trying to work out what Christians believe. Uh, Easter is essential. It's essential to understand Easter if you're to understand what it is that Christians believe and what makes someone a Christian. Uh, But for tonight, I want to stick with thinking about the experience of being abandoned by God. Because that is our experience sometimes. Uh, So what can we say about that uh, from Psalm 22 and Matthew 27? Uh, Well, I want to point out what comes straight after Jesus' death in Matthew 27. If you've got a Bible, uh, flick over to Matthew 27 at this point. The thing that comes after Jesus' death is connection. Jesus' abandonment leads to our connection with God. Uh, When Jesus dies, here's what happens. Verse 51. At that moment, uh, the moment of his death, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, uh, the curtain in the temple uh, was this huge physical barrier that kept people separated from God. Uh, On one side was the holy place, the place where God uh, dwelled with his people in the temple, and the curtain was to keep people separated because uh, sinful people couldn't come near a holy and perfect God. Uh, But Jesus' death, the point of his death, rips that curtain in two. The point of him being abandoned is the point where a way is open for us uh, to be connected to God. It all happens because he is forsaken. And so that tells us something uh, so wonderful uh, for us, for those times when we do feel forsaken by God. Because there might be times like that in your life when you feel abandoned by God. Uh, when you cry out to him, 
to change your circumstances, to do something and nothing happens. Uh, it's still the same. And you might even be going through something like that right now. You feel like God hasn't taken you out of whatever circumstance is really troubling you right now. And Psalm 22 says you don't have to deny that feeling, that uh, they can be the worst moments in life to feel like God uh, isn't answering, to feel forsaken. But the Christian can trust that in fact that isn't the case. The Christian can trust that in fact that isn't the case. Because Jesus' abandonment leads to our connection. The fact that he died opens up the curtain, makes a connection between us and God. And so we know that that barrier is completely gone. The barrier that was created by sin, uh, that did leave us forsaken by God, that is torn in two. Uh, But David didn't know that. David didn't know what we know. And so for him, uh, in the psalm, he needed the situation to change in order to feel like he wasn't being forsaken by God. Did you notice that? It was only uh, when God rescued him that he knew he wasn't forsaken. But we don't need that. We don't need the situation to change to know that God loves us. We don't need the situation to change to know that we're not forsaken by God. Even in the worst situations now, we can know that we are connected to God, that he loves us and that he cares for us because of Jesus' death. Before Jesus, our experience uh, was like a prisoner uh, in jail. And prisoners are allowed some kind of contact with their families, uh, but it's only limited, isn't it? It's for short periods, kind of separated by a glass barrier, something like that. And I imagine that the experience of being in jail is is that experience of feeling cut off from people you love. But for us, Jesus' death uh, is like us being released. The barrier is down. It's like uh, we've been set free and now we have full access. The bars aren't between you now. Now that doesn't mean that life will be fine as you go on, uh, but it does mean that you have full connection uh, with God. That's the experience for the, for the Christian now. Jesus was forsaken so that we wouldn't be. At the cross, God didn't step in and rescue him there like he did with David. No. Uh, Jesus went all the way to death on a cross so that those worldwide blessings, the world coming to know God and worship him would come about. Uh, Earlier I mentioned a friend of mine uh, who had suffered from depression and uh, the thing that uh, that kept him going was the fact that he knew that he belonged to the Lord. But you have to ask the question, how did he know that? How did he know that he belonged to the Lord? It was because he could look to the death of Jesus and know that At the death of Jesus, God had sent his son to rescue him, to make a way for him to be connected to God. That's how he knew he belonged to the Lord. That was the thing that he relied on when his circumstances didn't change year after year. That is the thing that we need to cling to, 
Cling to the death of Jesus to know that you are not forsaken by God.